You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. We are in a sermon series um, called Lost and Found. And if I have not met you yet, I'm Bill White, one of the pastors here at City Church. And as we enter into the message today, I want to invite uh, Julie Pineda, who's going to read scripture for us. Julie, can you unmute wherever you are? Are you there? Yes. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, so you can read for us. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's uh, probably most famous sermon in history um, and Jesus's biggest sermon. So uh, yeah, go ahead and read for us, Julie. Matthew 5, 38 to 45. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek, the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to them one who asks you. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it, it was said, <clears throat> love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those you per who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Julie. Appreciate that. Um, so this is a super, super challenging text. Um, and I, I really kind of felt like, man, I should... I should talk about this text. Um, really, in some ways, it's it captures some of my own spiritual journey. Uh, when I think about some of the things I've lost on the spiritual journey and some of the things I've found, and so we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about that, and then at the end, we're gonna hear from Katie White, um, who uh, I'm her husband, and she'll just share a little bit of her story too, um, as we as a church are thinking through. What does it look like um, to value our journeys, to value um, the, the both and of, of losing and finding? Uh, and so I just want to work through this passage, kind of um, almost verse by verse and, and think out loud with you. I'm not trying to uh, prove everything, but to help us think and imagine like, this is what Bill's spiritual journey has looked like and Katie's spiritual journey has looked like. What does my spiritual journey look like? Where is Jesus leading me? Um, so at the beginning of this passage, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, um, from the book of the law, from the book of Leviticus. And what he's trying to do, uh, th there are a couple of things that I think he's doing. But for me personally, I realized that what Jesus does with regularity is he, in, Jesus introduces uncertainty. And, and let me read this passage and, and tell you why. So in Leviticus 24, 20, which is what Jesus is quoting here, he says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. And this was a, a gift uh, to the people 
this teaching because it limited um, retribution. Like if, if I poke out your eye, you don't get to cut off my head, right? And so now this is a very fair way to think about justice. As I think about this and I think about Jesus's approach, though, he, he shifts from this idea of an eye for an eye to this sort of self-giving love. And it's a very different approach to how we treat people. It's not tit for tat. It's not clear. It's actually expansive. So this is what he says in Matthew 5, verse 39. He says, you've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. When it's eye for eye and tooth for tooth, the way you practice your religion is very clear. It's measurable. Okay, you poked out my eye, I poke out your eye. You break my tooth, I break your tooth. There's, and, and this carries over with a lot of us who grew up in religious traditions that were more structured. It was tit for tat. It, it, it's a very certain faith. You know what to do. But how, what are the limits on loving your enemy? How, how do you complete that? How do you achieve that? And he's talking about a state of being that you would become such a radically loving person that you would love your enemies. There's, there's no end to that. And on, on my own spiritual journey, as, as I've been following Jesus now since, you know, I'm 53, I was 16 when I became a Christian, um, it's shifted over the years. Early on, I think it was really helpful to have clear and delineated, like, you need to pray for 15 minutes every day. You need to give away 10% of your money. You need to read the Bible every day. Go to church every Sunday, right? All these sorts of things. And that was very helpful to have clear, structured guidelines. And it's very appropriate as we raise children in the faith to have some structures. But ultimately, Jesus is not about the structures. Ultimately, Jesus is about the love. And it's been very unnerving for me, disorienting even, to follow Jesus who commands love instead of saying the structures are what you need to invest in. Structures are helpful to, to guide us down a path at times, but it's never been about the structure. And Jesus in some ways, as we start to mature and grow, he introduces the kind of uncertainty that we need to expand beyond the simple structures. And with that, there's, a, there's another layer to it because Jesus presses on in the passage and he says this strange thing. It may not appear strange to us because it's in the Bible and we just sort of take it at face value, but he's actually being provocative here. And he says this in, in Matthew 5, 43, in the passage that Julie read. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, 
up to this point, this is the, the last time Jesus is, is using this kind of formula in his sermon, okay? So he's about a third of the way through his sermon in Matthew 5, and he's, being, he's saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And he quotes the Bible, and he kind of shifts it. He quotes the Bible, and he sort of shifts it. Here, he doesn't quote the Bible. I mean, he does, because the first part, love your neighbor, is actually from the Bible. That's from Leviticus chapter 18. But that second part, hate your enemy, is not in the Bible. So when he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, what he's doing is he's quoting sort of the common religious expression of the day. It's a cultural accretion. It's something that's been laid on top of God's purest design, this idea of loving neighbors. And they've added on top this idea of hate your enemy. And before we get all judgy and think, oh, that's terrible. How could they do that? Hello, let's look in the mirror, right? This is what we do all the time with our religion. We use it to hate other people. Who's inside? Who's outside? And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, religious friends, you've added a lot that's not very healthy. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm saying, no, that is not the way to do it. Even though it's absolutely part of your culture to hate those who are different. And as I, as I thought about my own spiritual journey, I realized there are so many layers that have built up on my faith. I had a super simple faith when I was a high school kid. Uh, God met me in a series of visions. Um, I started reading the Bible. I was just astounded at who Jesus was. I uh, became a Christian. And it was, it was awesome. But along the way, I've heard things essentially that say, love your neighbor, but keep the LGBTQ people out of the church right? You've probably heard this too. There's this, these added layers that get put on top of this core of the gospel. And so much of it has to do with us versus them. And Jesus is saying, it's time to lose your religion, or at least that part of it. And what's difficult is in this invitation to deconstruct what has been layered on top, if you start deconstructing, you don't know if it's actually just going to end in total demolition, right? That's the scary part. If you start unpacking the faith of your childhood and re-examining and taking it apart, you don't know if you're going to end up with any. And this is very frightening. And I think we just need to acknowledge that. Uh, I, I feel like I need to mention there's a second area that, I mean, I, I just couldn't see that had been added onto my faith. Um, there's a group of us who are reading the book, uh, Reading While Black. It's by Esau McCauley, who's a... Uh, 
professor of theology, and he's writing about how we read scripture and how oftentimes we've ignored other voices, particularly voices from those who are on the margins. And we've centered sort of the European American tradition of theology. When we talk about Luther and Calvin and you know, European theology, that's become the centerpiece of American Christianity. And he points out that particularly in white evangelicalism, which is my personal faith tradition, in white evangelicalism, uh, there, besides the, he, he talks historically about the four, main, the four main pillars of white evangelicalism, about the Bible and the personal faith and sharing your faith and, and activist faith, things like that. But then he writes about this. He says, he specifically talks about the two invisible pillars of white evangelicalism are a commitment to a certain reading of American history that downplays injustice and a gentleman's agreement to remain largely silent on current issues of racism and systemic injustice. Like if you're gonna be a white evangelical, you have to commit so many times it's unconscious, but you commit to a certain reading of history that says, oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, the 50s were the good old days. Oh, plantations were actually good for the slaves. And there's this gentleman's agreement. And I think the gender there is intentional. A white gentleman's agreement to remain silent about racism and systemic injustice, we don't, <clears throat> we don't expose it because if so, we would expose ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so for me now at this point on my spiritual journey, I'm realizing, oh my goodness, Jesus has been naming this, but because of the internal agreements I've made with myself and my faith, I have been unwilling to look. And Jesus is saying, let's look at what you've added on top of your faith. And let's, let's do some dismantling. A week ago, I was at a gathering, I was invited to a gathering of a bunch of pastors who were talking about the future of our personal, our, our denomination and how they were going to shift and create a new denomination um, that was more doctrinally pure, that had better theology, pure theology. Um, as it turns out, it was European, white, traditional, male theology. A friend of mine was on the call. There were 130 devices or something, and I, I looked at all the faces, and I knew a bunch of the names, and um, and so I sent a text message to my friend, um, Eric, and <laughs> this is what I said to him. This is on the side of the meeting. I sent a text message, and I, I think we've got a slide of that. Um, I just took a picture. I said, it's been a long time since I've been part of a meeting with over 100 people. That's 98% white and 93% male. And he's like, unfortunately, it hasn't been that long for me. And so then I just sort of wondered out loud with him. Hmm. I'm sure the demographics are accidental, but to some people less holy than me, they might wonder if there's a cultural and gender component to the motivations and ideas going on here. Right, and so I'm just like, Ooh. 
dude, like, can you notice? It's all white males in the room. And at one point they're like, yeah, we can't figure out why more, why more people of color aren't here. Well, we'll do some outreach and we'll, we'll, we'll bring them in. And you're like, oh my goodness, we don't even notice. And this is really often the case with so many of us who are white and male, pastors like me. We just assume we're doing like, let's get our theology right. And we don't realize the, the culture that we're bringing to it, the gender that we're bringing to it, all of these things. And so for me, Jesus keeps inviting me to, to lose things along the way. To, to let them go. Uh, and whew, it's, uh, it's hard. It's not hard in the same way as it is for people who have been marginalized, but it's hard to realize I've been a part of the system of doing the marginalization. That, that's been me. I was talking with a friend uh, this week, and I said, you know, one of the reasons why white people don't talk about privilege and power is because if we talked about it, we might expose it and realize that we're the ones who hold it. So we just, we have this gentleman's agreement. Don't talk about that. And Jesus is exposing me. That's what he does. And I strongly select strongly suspect he's exposing many of us. And along the way, he's centering those saying, hey, there are voices here you have not heard. Voices with great clarity, voices that you need. Will you listen? Will you listen? Oh. So I want to add to that another piece that I, I'm losing as I think about losing my religion and, and gaining a more like, oh my goodness, like there's so many voices I need to, to recenter. So, you know, I've committed to reading all these books and going to seminars and learning from, from people who are different than me, which has been fantastic. Uh, you know, it's been a huge gift. Along the way, one of the things that that I feel like I'm losing has been my very tight grip on the Bible. And, and this is gonna be, you know, so this piece, I just, uh, there are folks here on this call where this might be unnerving for you and I, I don't know what to do besides process it out loud. Um, but when Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, but I tell you, love your enemies turn the other cheek. He's messing with the Bible. And there's this word that some of you know, and some of you don't, and it comes with a lot of baggage. It's this word inerrancy. The idea that the Bible has no errors. Um, and it's kind of a, a key aspect of a lot of um, white evangelical theology. And um, it's a cultural artifact. It was this, the word was created in the 1970s uh, 
to, to try to name some of the ways that a, a lot of the, the white men had been thinking about how to read the Bible. And it has with it a lot of the assumptions that I, I mentioned earlier. And it's this idea that when you read the Bible, each passage holds only one truth, one interpretation, which is readily available to everyone. And particularly if you listen to the white male teachers of the Bible, they'll tell you what it is. And uh, I, I literally thought this is the only way to read the Bible. The whole idea of reading the Bible is kind of do, to do this treasure hunt where you, where you listen to enough interpretations where you get it right. Uh, and so there's a big statement called the Chicago Statement on uh, Biblical Inerrancy in 1978. And, and it says a few things like this. This is in the chat. But uh, we affirm that the Bible expresses God's truth in propositional statements. This idea that, that everything is in a statement. It's a truth like uh, you have to give 10%. You, you have to, this, is, this is what sexual morality is. This is what's good. This is what's bad. Which is crazy. Because Jesus always spoke in stories. He taught in stories. Last week we heard this parable, the pearl of great price. And like, how do you reduce a story to a set of propositions, a set of statements? It, it, it's really hard. I mean, there are a bunch of other things, like another thing from the Chicago statement here, and we'll see it in the chat is we affirm that the meaning expressed in each biblical text is a single definite, is single, definite, and fixed. There's only one interpretation of every verse in the Bible. But there are four gospels. There are four stories of the life of Jesus, and they're all different. I mean, God is saying, like, hey, let's take, let's take a different look at this. Let's, let's look at it from a more Greek perspective or a more Jewish perspective. Or for, with Luke from kind of, let's look at it from underneath. Like the people who are on the margins, they see Jesus in a different way than Matthew, who's looking at it as more of the royal king. Like you see, like the Bible itself says that's a crazy idea. Anyway. But this idea of inerrancy, that's something that I've had to lose because because of Jesus, because Jesus says to the Bible, you've heard it said this way, but let me shift that. I actually think it's this way. And I wanna look at one of the passages that this passage about loving our enemy is pointed at. It's one of the worst passages in the Bible. I'm going to read it in a moment. It is very disturbing. Uh, in fact, I please feel free to click off your camera and put it on mute and take a little walk for a minute. Seriously, because it's, it's triggering. It's about violence and it's about sexual violence. It comes from Numbers chapter 31. And there are multiple places like this in the Bible. I'm not just sort of cherry picking one. There are many and many and many. Uh, and in it, it's this, it, it just makes your head crazy when you think this was God. Okay, so let me read that passage and remember what Jesus is saying here, about how to look at this differently, about how the call is actually, no, it's, it's not just love our neighbors, it's love our enemies. So this is from Numbers 
31. The Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. So Moses said to the people, arm some of your men and go to war against the Midianites so that they may carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. They fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. Great. That really sounds like Jesus. How do you love your neighbors? How do you love your enemies? How do you kill them? I mean, with this crazy talk, right? Then it gets even worse. I don't know, worse. It's just different, terrible. And listen to this. So they took all the plunder. This is the, in the same chapter. They took all the plunder and spoils, including the people and animals, and brought the captives, spoils, and plunder to Moses and Eleazar, the priest, and the Israelite assembly at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan. Have you allowed all the women to live? Moses asked them. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who's never slept with a man. And the, they plundered. The plunder remaining from the spoils that the soldier took was all these sheep, all these cattle, all these donkeys, and 32,000 women who became sex slaves. That's what the Bible teaches. It's really traumatic. And I avoid and have avoided passages like that for so long. Because just like you, it just scrambles my brains hurts my heart and I don't know what to do with it. Um, I want to invite Brenda Rubio. She led a, a book group on this book called Womanist Midrash that actually studied this passage and some others um, like it. Brenda, could you talk us through just a little bit here and then I'll just wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Bill and I, we were talking about this message today, and I was like, oh, Bill, this just reminds me, uh, because our group met for the last time this last week, uh, a small group of us who's been meeting over the last couple of months, and we're basically just taking one chapter of this book a week, going through the first five books of the Bible, it's traditionally called the Pentateuch. Um, and we were reading it in detail. Womanist Midrash, uh, this, this idea of like taking a, not just a feminist view on scripture, but an African-American, a black experience feminist perspective uh, to reading these passages. So we were particular, particularly looking for the passages that had to do with women in the first five books of the Bible, which meant all sorts of stuff about patriarchy and sex slavery and abuse and oh it was just it was just awful so it was such an interesting thing as we were wrapping up our group last Wednesday and we were just talking about kind of what we learned what we'd been through and I was listening to these women share and I just it struck me that every week as we came together to talk about Genesis and then Exodus Leviticus numbers um, we would just come in going Oh, it was awful. I mean, it was just, it was gross. It was um, traumatic. 
it was triggering all of these different passages and and uh, you know there were there were the occasional bright spots um but just so many moments of just going this is how they looked at women this is how god is represented is talking about women about talking about humanity in general oh it just felt so heavy and then at the same time as we were all evaluating just kind of what we'd learned from this book there's a sense of this book was amazing this was freeing this was empowering this was encouraging because there was this sense that we could deal with it that as i was talking what i was realizing was that for so many years all of us had just avoided these stories had avoided these passages and because they're so pervasive what it meant was that really we were avoiding like most of the bible and in some cases some of the people in the group would tell you yeah it'd been years since they felt like they could pick up their bibles but will gaffney who wrote the book she just had this incredible perspective and we're going to put it in the chat uh, she talks about talking back to the text challenging it questioning it interrogating it unafraid of the power and authority of the text just as a girl growing into a woman talks back to her elders questioning the world around her in order to learn how to understand and navigate it for so long it just felt like we had been given this um this perspective on scripture that sort of said take it or leave it you know you got to either just take a sort of like face value literal interpretation or you can't do anything with it like those are the only two options and so to be presented with the option of like no we can read it understand it question it even talk back to it it just it opened up an entirely new way of reading and engaging with scripture that just felt like it was actually welcoming us in for the first time. Wow. So helpful, Brenna. Thank you so much. Yeah, what a great group. I got to pop in on a couple of those meetings and just great conversations, right? And so you realize what Jesus is doing. He's trying to turn the ship back to this idea of no, no, no. All the way from the beginning, it's been about love. That's actually the core of it. Love your neighbor. Love God. Oh, hear God's heart. Jesus is, is constantly turning it back to love. And I think that's our invitation today to go on that journey. Uh, I want to invite uh, Katie White uh, to share just a little bit of her story that ties in with this whole idea of how do you wrestle with the text? How do you wrestle with your spiritual journey? Um, uh, Katie, are you? Uh, are you out there? Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, good to see you. Uh, Katie and I have been married for 28 years. Uh, I've got a couple of kids we are trying to parent together. Um, who One's in college, one's out of the house. And uh, so what? tell us just a little bit, what do you do and how, do you, how did you end up doing that? So... Um... I guess my profession is I'm a doctor and I work in urban Los Angeles doing family practice with, um, and our, the clinic where I work focuses on people experiencing homelessness and also others in generational poverty. And I think as a, as a kid, I, I kind of wanted to be a doctor, but in college, I sort of hit a crisis where I had no idea why I wanted to be a doctor and um, just wasn't sure sort of what my purpose was. 
And so I, I found myself across the world in India uh, with a friend of mine studying Hinduism and Buddhism. And that's a story for another time, but um, she was also pre-med and we visited some open air hospitals. And I think during that time, I just was really overwhelmed by the poverty that I saw and the, and the medical need and the health need. And also uh, I was reading about Jesus at the same time, kind of exploring faith. And I just, um, as I really heard Jesus um, talking about the call to follow him and to love um, sort of people who were the most marginalized, I really, it kind of came together for me. And I realized that this was what Jesus was asking of me to, to follow him and also to serve people who were on the margins of healthcare, you know, needing healthcare. It made sense. Love it. Yeah. So you've, in, in our family, I've been the good white conservative evangelical, um, and you've been the uh, justice lover uh, ever. I mean, you know, in med school, working with migrant farm workers back in the early 90s, when you got your public health degree, you focused on health access for Latinx women. Uh, you know, you've always worked in, in urban core settings in LA. Uh, this has just always been your heart, but uh, it seems a little different now in some ways. Uh, the last few years, it seems like there's been a shift for you around what it looks like to love people, uh, love them the way Jesus teaches and not just the way um, maybe your religion taught you or something like that. But tell us a little bit about that journey, where it started and how it shifted. Yeah, I think ever since that trip to India and then another um, time when we lived in Mexico for a while, I, I think I knew that I was called outside of my comfort zone. And, um, but I, I found myself at a, at a conference in 1993, which was early on in medical school. Um, and it was very focused on, on justice and race and racism. And it was almost like at that age of 23, I, I really heard about racism for the first time. And I remember sitting in a group of women who were mostly African-American and, and just confessing that I realized that I'm a part of this problem and what do I do? And at that point, they, they, very, they were very gracious. They, they said, you need to build relationships. You need to see Jesus and people who are different from you. And, and so that started a journey um, that's been very long. And at that point I began to build relationships. And, and since then, I feel like I've seen faith and strength in my patients really. And even in the staff at the clinics where I've served, most of whom are on the outside of privilege and power. And they've really shown me a part of the kingdom of God and Jesus's concept that the last will be first in a way that I would never have known as a person who had experienced a lot of privilege. Um, I have really seen the love of Christ in them. And I've just seen resilience in friends that I've made. I made one friend after that conference in 1993. Her name is Ngazi. Her last name is now Ezike. And um, she was a very good friend to me, gracious in ways that I never deserved. And she now is the director of the Illinois Department of Public Health. So she's kind of famous in her own setting. You could look her up. Um, and her faith and her strength is just inspiring to me. And I've been privileged. She actually asked me to be the godmother to her child. And so it's like me and, and her whole family of Nigerians. It's just honoring. 
and I feel, you know, unworthy, but grateful. So I see Jesus in her. Um, but I think in the past couple of years, I've also been dealing with reading more about the history of racial oppression and, and just violence and unimaginable atrocities against black people and other people of color. And I just feel like my eyes are open in a new way. And, you know, just to think that this was all done to maintain power. So even on my racial journey of 25 years, really only the last couple of years have I really began to have my eyes opened to the impact of this throughout history. And I think the shift is that I used to think of our country as basically good, basically good people. And now I realize we are basically broken. And um, it's just been devastating. The impact of kind of whiteness, white supremacy, and how hard it is for people like me to admit this. And in our desire to hold on to power, we who have held power and privilege have really hated and really harmed so much. And we have a long way to go. And I have a long way to go. So I'm grieving this, but I, you know, I really hold on to my heroes like Ngazi, like Brian Stevenson, who says, to fight against racism, we must remain tethered to hope. And so I hold on to that hope. Appreciate you, Katie. Thanks so much uh, for sharing that. Um, uh, tell us um, about your, a little bit about and we'll close with this question, but uh, your your relationship with the Bible, your relationship with Jesus, um, how, how has that shifted um, along this journey? Yeah, I think as a young person, I didn't grow up in a particularly structured white evangelical world, which I'm thankful for. Um, so even when I first was exploring Christianity, I had questions about the Bible stuff didn't make sense. I didn't understand why women were treated and seen as less. Um, and yet Jesus centered women, like it just didn't make sense to me. Um, I didn't understand, I guess, some of the violence in the Old Testament, which was super inconsistent with Jesus's call to love. Um, I didn't understand the creation story. Like it looked like a myth or a poem, but is it supposed to be a scientific explanation? It didn't, didn't make sense. Um, and so, you know, a lot of, I had questions, but I was always compelled by Jesus. And I just appreciated um, his call to love. And I even, appreciated how the Psalms and the prophets and, and the letters, you know, talked about this struggle, this desire to love, but our tendency to hate that is real life. And so I found in scripture, real life, reality. Um, I think now um, I'm grateful for community where these questions can really be discussed. And, you know, I didn't, I guess I didn't explore the depth of the inconsistencies of scripture until more recently. Um, but it's, I'm happy to know that we don't need black or white answers, that we can live in, I can live in the gray and I can accept that there's a lot that doesn't make sense. Um, and what I still hold on to now is that I'm still really compelled by Jesus. Even some of the things Jesus says or is recorded to have said don't make sense to me. Um, but he loved, he healed, he treasured and centered people who were on the outside. And that is how I wanna live. And so I guess in, in, in scripture and in spiritual community, I sort of find myself in this broader struggle to love. And that's where I want to stay. Um, thanks so much uh, for sharing your story with us. And uh, what a gift you've given. Thank you, honey. <laughs>